Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. The 42nd Hong Kong International Film Festival opens on Monday with 230 feature films and documentaries for us to watch during the festival period from March the 19th to April the 5th. In the next two programmes, I'm joined by the Executive Director of the Hong Kong International Film Festival Society, Roger Garcia, to talk about the festival, his life and love of movies from an early age, and also how Hong Kong has developed its art facilities and what still needs to be done. Roger Garcia moved to England at the age of three when his father joined the bar. He would later become a judge and also Hong Kong's first ombudsman. Roger Garcia studied fine art and these days, as well as being the executive director of the festival, he's also a successful Hollywood producer. The festival includes 14 movies starring Hong Kong actress Bridget Lin. The renowned German director and screenwriter Werner Herzog will also be visiting Hong Kong next week. Roger Garcia starts by telling me about the festival. Yes, we have about 230 films, about 320 or so screenings all over town. And I think that we bring a a pretty good menu of international cinema and Asian films, of course, Chinese language also, and some retrospective works. Uh, Restored classics are always a big hit uh, with us. We have the uh, Chikamatsu Monogatari, a Mizuguchi classic uh, Japanese film, We love to show it on the big screen and our audiences love to watch these classic films on big screens. We've also got a tribute to Bridget Lin, who is one of the icons of Chinese language cinema. She's the woman in the blonde wig in Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. I think everybody knows her with that. And also she's the bride with white hair, which is also another cult favorite. On the streets of Hong Kong, a mysterious woman a young cop and an innocent dreamer are about to meet where mystery and romance collide. Miramax Films and Rolling Thunder Pictures present Wong Kar Wai's Chung King Express. When you're watching films, so not in your job but in private, do you have a big screen at home or do you watch it on your iPhone? No, I have a, I'm, I'm a pretty uh, modest sort of guy, so I have like a 40-inch screen, um, and I watch it on that. I actually also have a video projector, but I don't use that so much now. You yourself, I mean, you've obviously produced in Hollywood. If you were saying to young cinematographers who want to get going in Hong Kong, what would you advise in terms of types of camera? I think nowadays, uh, without branding anybody in particular... I think if you get a good DSLR, that is still a good option. Anything that's got a one-inch CMOS sensor in it is good. I've shot actually with everything from um, Harinazumi, which is a a digital emulation of an 8mm camera, to Super 35. And I also used to shoot 16 and Super 8 and Standard 8 as well. What would you have said are the fun aspects of shooting in Hong Kong? I think one of the fun aspects of shooting in Hong Kong is just the... uh, how should I say, the informality of it. I've only really shot indie films in Hong Kong um, and sort of experimental work, so it was really more of an improvisation, not exactly an improvisation, but on the run, so to speak. And I like 
that aspect of it. I've also shot in Hollywood with a crew of about 300 people and uh, also in Florida and uh, Canada and things like that. So that's a slightly different dimension. But actually, the essentials are always the same. I mean, I'm the producer, not the director. So it's just a matter of making sure everything gets done on time. When you say, oh, you know, you, you produced in Hollywood, what would that have involved uh, largely, that uh, was actually more on the creative rather than the physical production side. Um, that's to say, to find projects, uh, to develop them with writers, to set it up at a studio, and then to struggle, in a sense, with the studio um, on getting the movie made. Uh, and then uh, also the studio discussing with them about the physical production aspects, like where do you shoot, when do you shoot, uh, you know, what's the schedule, what's the budget, etc. And then, of course, then going on set. But on set in a big production, I am not in charge, so to speak. I don't think anyone is ever in charge of anything, but um, <laughs> the, the physical, the line producer is the guy who really has to get things done, the line producer and the assistant director department. And then after that, uh, to work on the post-production, not so much in the technical sense, but actually to discuss once again with the studio or the distributor, the marketing aspects and the release dates and things like that. Yes, because I have to say, whenever I see producer, I actually think of myself as the radio producer. So actually, putting the you know, the, the, but that's it's it's way more. It's actually ensuring that the project stays to schedule. Yes, what I would say is that a producer in Hollywood is there to, depending on what sort of producer you are, is actually there to protect uh, the director and and the movie and. Often, depending on the relationship, and I have to say I think my relationships are quite good, you have to deal with the studio. So the, the producer is the person who is kind of the interface, actually, between the creative uh, filmmaking team, the actual filmmakers, um, and the studio. And to deal with the studio is to deal, actually, with everything. Now, with the Hong Kong International Film Festival starting on Monday, so the 19th of March, you've got 230 films on show. Is Hong Kong a real cinema-going public? It used to be. Nowadays, with the digitization and new digital platforms and things like that, increasingly so in a multiplicity of languages, Korean, Japanese, and particularly Chinese, the compulsion to go to the cinema regularly is not so much there. People come out to the cinema to watch tentpole pictures or maybe a later Stephen Chow film or something like that. But in terms of uh, watching international art movies, etc., I have to say it's something of a challenge. I think Hong Kong is still a movie-watching community, but it's not necessarily a movie-going community. I love, I mean, it's interesting when I've, I've read articles where you've spoken about a cinema provides, you know, where you're meeting people, where you're watching films, you're then discussing them. Mm -hmm. I also find going to a cinema by myself and getting completely absorbed in a huge screen and what's going on there and that story, that can't be replicated by just looking on a TV or a phone. That's absolutely true. As a festival, we try and preserve or promote the movie-going communal experience. And, you know, I was brought up in movie theatre, I mean, going to see movies in movie theatres, and that's something that I still enjoy. And I enjoy watching a movie in a big screen in the theatre with other people, although I have to say I also like watching movies by myself in a theatre. I watched The Blair Witch Project when I was living in New York. I went to the cinema. I was the only guy in the theatre, and that is a really scary film. So that was a very interesting theatrical experience. I just want to apologise to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. 
I am so, so sorry. Because it is my fault. Because it was my project. missing Montgomery College students continues in Frederick County tonight. Ten days and thousands of man hours have been unable to produce any clues. We have a few leads, a um, few other options we want to take advantage of and just try to put together some, uh, some pieces to this puzzle. Do you believe the occult may be involved in the disappearance of your son? I'm so scared. I try and encourage, or we try and encourage as a film festival, people to go and watch movies in theatres. This is one of the reasons um, that I've held off something that I was interested in doing, which was uh, to have kind of online festival as HKIFF and to show selections from the festival online. We haven't really done that yet. Obviously, there's uh, things about infrastructure of this of the system and rights and things like that. It's something that I might give some thought to later on but for the last three years or so we've been really focused on audience development uh, trying to promote the idea of going to theatres to watch films Do you know or do you remember what was the first movie you ever watched? I don't remember the actual the very first movie I watched but I do remember the first film I remember which was Journey to the Centre of the Earth which is an American movie. I think Ray Harryhausen was involved in that, and that was a gr- a great. I, I actually watched that once in a while, but it struck me that it was a, a movie that, I don't know if you know the story, it's a Jules Verne story, people go into the centre of the earth where they discover another world. <laughs> and it was the creation of this other world, and maybe through special effects, but not necessarily, um, that fascinated me. And cinema is another world. It creates different worlds and worlds of its own. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why I remember that movie. It's unthinkable, but it must be true. A man took some tools and went where no human being had ever set foot, alone. Went into the interior of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is James Mason. Come along with Pat Boone and me, Arlene Dahl, Diane Baker, and Gertrude the Duck and discover sights and sounds and wonders no living man has ever witnessed before, filmed in the incomparable magic of CinemaScope. We'll take our leave of civilization on the bleak, barren wastes of Iceland, peer in awe at the bottomless crater of an uncharted volcano, make the perilous descent into the unknown. You'll pioneer with us through countless miles of trackless labyrinths, discover huge subterranean caverns never beheld by human eye, Become lost in the weird underground maze. You'll find yourself engulfed in grotesque, petrified jungles. Marvel at the fantastically beautiful quartz grotto. Tumble into cascading salt beds. Escape from hissing steam caves. Behold the staggering underground ocean. You'll encounter breathtaking dangers beyond belief. Here, at the center of the earth. Stop! They are warning. You'll never find your companions or your way out. You need me as much as I need you. Stop and come back. Now, you were born here, you were partly educated here, but also in England. 
Yes, I was born in Hong Kong, but I left when I was about two years or three years old uh, because my father was called to the bar in London. So actually, I spent quite a lot of time in London. Uh, London and Hong Kong are the cities of my childhood, in a way. So I travelled back and forth between London and Hong Kong. I have to say, you know, I'm quite old. So this was in the fifties, and um, uh, travelling, commuting at that time was actually by ship. Uh, I didn't take the plane. Uh, it was, I guess, it was too expensive. Um, in any event, you can't take a plane by yourself when you're five years old. So I went on the ship with uh, my mother and my brother. How into you would come out back out of Southampton? Actually, the journey at that you know we went to Southampton on the first trip, but uh, the journey at that time later, when you know, I was slightly older, about seven or eight, the journey then was from Hong Kong on Lloyd Tristino Line, which was an Italian line, to Genoa, and then you take the train through Saint Gotthard Pass through Paris, and then to Calais, and then the boat train to London. Oh, that's so much nicer than just a twelve-hour overnight flight. Well, it took about six weeks, yeah, <laughs> and I enjoyed it because I enjoy, and I to this day, of course, I still enjoy traveling on trains, um, and I enjoy uh, the the process, I suppose, the journey, sometimes more than the destination. Now, when you were at college, you actually headed up the film society. Yes, uh, actually, I was the head of the. F- film club, if I can put it that way, when I was in boarding school for two years, and I showed basically the films that I read about, in fact. And at that time in England, you could rent films from the British Film Institute. They came uh, on the train uh, through a very interesting delivery service called Red Star, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't a communist-aligned group, but it was pretty interesting that the films would come on a Red Star, and we would show... Um, I would order films from the British Film Institute, and then, you know, the rentals were quite cheap. To this day, I am still quite indebted to the BFI for that kind of film education. I don't know if they do it anymore, um, but at that time, they certainly did a good job. I mean, who would think of sending movies to a boarding school? So in in those early years, I mean, you're a student in the 60s, so you're showing, what, Jean-Luc Godard? Yes, exactly. I had a book uh, published by Second Warburg Cinema One on Jean-Luc Godard. I read this book without actually having seen too many of his movies. I think I'd seen Breathless, and it was really interesting. So I found that I could order Weekend from the BFI, so I ordered that to for our school film society and this is a film about cannibalism and revolution and everything (laughs) it's a great movie Um, so we showed that and of course I also ordered some films like Satyajit Ray's Mahanagar, The Big City which nobody liked Um, it was quite interesting movie and I think my greatest coup if one could call it that was showing If by Lindsay Anderson which of course is a film about a revolution in a boarding school so we were all sitting there in a boarding school in our uniforms watching this movie uh, which is based actually on Jean Vigo's Zero de Conduite and, um, you know, watching this film about these guys shooting their teachers. I serve the nation. There's no such thing as a wrong war. Violence and revolution are the only pure acts. 
So when these films used to arrive delivered by Red Star from the uh, British Film Institute, what did you do then, just uh, reel them up at the back and you had a big projector there? Yes, we had a kind of gymnasium, I think it was, uh, and, you know, we put seats up, and we had a projectionist, one of the... uh, I went to a Catholic boarding school, so one of the brothers there, uh, I think, was the projectionist. We had actually, I think it was 16 mil at that we were using. So we had, uh, I think, two 16 mil projectors, and he would do the projection. Now, later on, you would actually have a connection with, uh, quite early on, with Jean-Luc Godard. Well, it was (laughs) strange. When I was then, um, later, I was in university, uh, and uh, there was, in fact, um, a retrospective um, of Jean-Luc Godard's work, it was really um, quite a surprise because it was organised in Hull, which is a city in the north of England. I was actually in Leeds, so it wasn't too far away. So about three or four of us piled into a car and we went to Hull, which is really a complete out-of-the-way place to have a retrospective of the works of Jean-Luc Godard. And this really baffled me, but I was quite intrigued by the whole thing. And what attracted us, actually, was the fact that Godard himself was supposed to appear. Uh, This was in his Maoist phase, so I thought, I guess he thought he would meet some working class people. So we showed up, and in fact, Godard did not show, but his collaborator at the time, Jean-Pierre Gorin, showed up, and Godard and Gorin were together in something called the Ziegewertov group, and they made films collectively. And Gorin was there to introduce um, their movies, such as Letter to Jane and Tu va bien, which he was a co-director on. So it was pretty amazing for us as students to meet this guy who, you know, was uh, collaborating with Godard, who at that time was truly the, the mythical and the great filmmaker of our era. When you were two or three, you left uh, Hong Kong uh, when your father joined the bar in London. But where, what sort of particular district of Hong Kong were you born in? I was born in Hong Kong, so you could call me a mainlander, but I lived in Happy Valley for most of the time. And what's the Garcia heritage? Uh, We are part Portuguese family. Uh, I discovered that my great-grandfather came here, probably with the British, you know, in the 1840s, 1860. I think he was here probably around 1860. Um, I didn't know anything about him. Um, I don't know, you know, what he did or anything. But my grandfather, I discovered, uh, he was kind of an accountant, and God knows what that meant at the early early 20th century. But what I discovered, uh, interestingly, about him was that he actually was uh, sent... He he worked for some company. He went to Manila to set up a shipping company uh, in, I guess, it was in the early 20th century. And at that time, he used to... Uh, mix quite a lot both with the Chinese and the Filipino and the Portuguese community and I understand he spoke Filipino um, which was really interesting I never met my grandfather he died before I was born which was very interesting because later on I had quite and still do have quite a close engagement with the Filipino filmmaking community and I've been to Manila many times and it's very odd that I find myself in a sense uh, and I made movies in the Philippines too uh, following in my grandfather's footsteps without ever having known anything about it. And what did, so your father, he became a judge, did he? Yes, my father was called to the bar and uh, he, uh, he rose up through the ranks of the judiciary in Hong Kong and he was a Supreme Court judge and uh, then he became Hong Kong's first ombudsman. Oh, that's a challenging job. Yes, it is. You police the administration, which means everybody hates you. <laughs> I think. (laughs) But my father knew a lot of people, so it was quite good, I think. 
And did you have brothers and sisters? Yes, I have a brother who uh, is a classical guitarist and he lives in Oxford. Hmm. And uh, how did your father and mother feel when you said, I'm off to study film? Um, well, I think they were okay with it, but they weren't. A li- they were very unsure about the whole thing, of course, because my brother was actually my brother uh, studied chemistry, uh, but he became a classical guitarist. Of course, uh, what else would you do? Um, and then I was studying fine arts, actually, which is a, a degree that doesn't prepare you for anything unless you are willing to, you know, go and work in Sotheby's or you know auction houses and. And or, or toil your way through a museum. So my father was, uh, I guess he was a little concerned, but he didn't seem to show that too much. But he was actually somewhat concerned that I should get a job. And what was your first job? <laughs> my first job was actually with the Hong Kong government, which I joined uh, because my father said, you probably need to get a job. And it was very difficult to get a job in the film industry. I mean, it is now, and it was then, in this, I guess, in the 70s. So I joined the Hong Kong government. I had a great interview in London. I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing, so I showed up in Hong Kong, and because of my background, I, my degree, I went to work in the cultural services department, such as it was called then. And what did that involve? That actually involved everything, and it was a great... A great start. I had great trepidation about working for the government because I had no idea what it meant. I wasn't, um, you know, a bureaucrat type of guy and I knew very little about Hong Kong politics. Well, it wasn't. I mean, it was a colony. Um, so I had no idea what really what the government did. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that um, degree of ignorance is terrible. But I started working in City Hall and the Cultural Services Department. I I worked for uh, Darwin Chen, who is truly the father of modern uh, Hong Kong cultural facilities. I have a lot of respect for him. And he was actually engaged in, at that point, not only uh, working on developing the performing arts in Hong Kong, Chinese orchestra, Hong Kong Phil, because City Hall had all the venues and everything, but he was also involved in building venues the cultural centre in Chim Sa Choi, um, and also the town halls in Tun Mun and Sha Tin and Chun Wan. So I worked on all of that, on the planning and things. Uh, I didn't work so much on the operations of the performing arts. Uh, that was actually uh, an ongoing machine anyway, which was working very well. But they just started the Chinese Music Orchestra, as it was called, and also the film festival. So uh, one of my first jobs was actually to produce a film on the Chinese music orchestra because Darwin saw that, oh, I had a film in background, so you go and produce this short movie about the Chinese music orchestra. It was actually directed by a guy called Wang Wake, who later became the director of RTHK. <laughs> great guy, great filmmaker, actually. And then one of the other things I was then sent to do uh, by Darwin was to go and work in the new Hong Kong International Film Festival which had just started, and uh, they had a manager there, Paul Young, and I worked on that, uh, amongst everything else that I was doing. So how long has the Hong Kong International Film Festival been in existence? We started in 1976, and the first festival was held, I think it was uh, June or July 1977. I actually worked then, because I arrived in the autumn of 1977, I started working on the second film festival. Uh, And then Paul left, actually. He emigrated to Canada, uh, and I basically became the director of the film festival. What kind of films were you showing on that second film festival? 
I was involved in the second and the third film festival. The third one is more important. The second one, the the thing that I remember most about it was that we started then the Hong Kong film retrospective. That was the very first retrospective we did, which was Cantonese cinema of the 1950s. And of course, there was no real video at the time. So basically, the programmer, uh, a great guy called Lam Ling Tung, who became a professor in Baptist U later on, uh, he basically had stacks and stacks of cans of 35mm film, some rusty, some you know, um, in not in such good shape, we set up a 35mm projector and a projectionist for him in one of the back rooms of the city hall and basically he spent all day watching these 35mm prints of old Cantonese movies and occasionally when I had time I would join him there were a number of other film critics uh, joining him as well but essentially he started in the morning the projectionist brought him a cup of tea he sat down and then for the next I think 12 hours he basically watched movies and I thought this is a, a pretty amazing way to make a living because <laughs> he was the programmer so I would just drop in once in a while but at that time at, in the back corridors of City Hall we had stacks and stacks and stacks of 35mm film cans it was pretty amazing and the stuff I watched I never knew anything about Cantonese cinema of the 50s I'd watched a little bit on TV when I was in Hong Kong but I'd never seen such an aggregation of work and so uh, over the time that we were um, preparing the film festival and Lam Ling Tung was preparing the retrospective, I managed to watch, say, maybe 10, 20 films and certainly bits of films and basically acquaint myself with the great tradition and the riches of Hong Kong Cantonese cinema of the 1950s. And that was really made a great impression on me. Yes, it was a very rich time. You've got the Cantonese opera, well, Cantonese operas that are made into films. Yes. And then what did you have in terms of drama? Well, what I discovered after watching all these movies was that uh, melodrama is really the cornerstone of uh, much of Asian drama. And Hong Kong was one of the superior exponents of this form. And I'm also a student of melodrama of Douglas Sirk and Hollywood melodrama and things like that. And so when you watch some of the Hong Kong movies of the 1950s, it matches and is comparable to global and international cinema at the time. Certainly some of the great works, some of my favourite films, Cold Nights by Lei Sun Fung, and some other films in The Stars, like Bak Yin, who is one of my favourite Cantonese actresses. I think these films are on a par with the Dorothy Malones and the Douglas Sirks and the Robert Stacks that you watch in Hollywood melodrama. We didn't exactly have a Rock Hudson, but I think that there were enough Chung Wut Yao and Ng Cho Fan and people like that who were really top-class, world-class actors. And it's a shame in a way that that work, of course it's also a question of language and markets and things like that, uh, that these works were not really known and they weren't known. And uh, today, you know, with the retrospective, we helped to make them known. Some of them are now, um, you know, quite well known, and certainly the Hong Kong audience knows it. 
and it was one of the things about the retrospective that I think was really important was that it helped to legitimize this type of uh, Hong Kong cinema that everybody thought was in you know old scratchy prints that they would watch on morning TV only for you know older people in armors and things but that we legitimized that and showed that it was truly an art form and that in the 1950s some of the Hong Kong directors had a mise-en-scene that was comparable to Renoir in France uh, Cirque in Hollywood and everything else. Now, some of those films can now be seen at the Hong Kong Film Archive. Yes, I th- I'm, I'm quite proud of the fact that uh, one of the things that doing the retrospective in the Hong Kong International Film Festival, it eventually led to the, uh, the setting up of the Hong Kong Film Archive. My thanks to Roger Garcia, the Executive Director of the Hong Kong International Film Festival Society. Next week, Roger also talks to me about the development of Hong Kong arts. He also talks about the Hong Kong Film Archive and preserving local films. If you'd like to see some of the movies that the festival has on offer, then go to the Hong Kong International Film Festival website to see the programme and ticketing. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>